This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. My name is Rick Houston, and this is going to be another one of those glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing stories. You know what we need in NASCAR these days? Nicknames. There just aren't any good nicknames in the sport anymore. Once upon a time, we had a fireball, the clown prince of NASCAR, Gentleman Ned, the Silver Fox, the King. Those tags gave way to the Intimidator, one tough customer, Ironhead, Rubberhead, Texas Terry, and later, there was Buckshot and Smoke. There's still a smut running around the garage, but that's a nickname that Jimmy Means has had for 40 years or more. Today, we do have Happy, Bubba, Fire B, and Matt, D-Burrito. But you know what? We got to do better than that. Mention the name Michael McSwain to anybody who followed NASCAR in the 1990s to the mid-2000s, and you're likely to draw a blank stare. But hit them with Fatback, and there is instant recognition. Like me, Michael McSwain has always been, that's the best way to put this, gravitationally challenged. While still a teenager, he was giving a friend a hard time. And it was at that point when she decided to fire right back at him. I've never told this story much, but, but she's deceased now, so I'll tell this story. Her name was Lisa, and we used to call her a few names because she was kind of an airhead. And, uh, <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, she initially done it to try to be mean and get me back, but and it just stuck, and it and it stuck, and it stuck, and it's just been there. You know, I'm 54 now, and it was, I've had it since I was 16 or 17 years old. All these years later, does he prefer to be called Michael, or is Fatback okay with him? All I know is this, because his mama calls him Michael, I'm going to call him Michael. Unless, what's the best way to put this? There's Michael McSwain, the good guy, the easygoing guy, and then, then there's Fatback. Don't mess with Fatback. If he feels that he's being threatened, or his family... Or his team, watch out. You don't want none of that. Politically correct? Nope. Not fight back. No way, no how. He is the very essence of old school in a new school world. So settle in for some good old-fashioned bench racing with Michael McSwain and Fatback. When it comes to NASCAR... He learned the trade alongside two masters who were as old school as old school can possibly get. He came by it honest. Michael's first crew chief gig was with team owner Richard Jackson and driver Morgan Shepard in 1997. He got the job basically through the process of elimination. Michael knew how to build a shock absorber and set up a car. So all of a sudden, tag, you're it. You're the crew chief. From Atlanta Motor Speedway, the 
the Prime Star 500 NASCAR Winston Cup race. Morgan Shepard always ran well in Atlanta, site of the 1997 season's fourth race. Three of his four career Winston Cup victories came at that track, and he darn near got another one this time around. In the 11th row, Morgan Shepard, three of his four career wins have been here, and defending series champ Terry Labonte. Morgan took just two tires during his final late race pit stop, while Dale Jarrett, who had dominated the race to that point, got four. The fat backside of Michael McSwain's personality was about to be introduced to Todd Parrott. This will be a good story right here for you. Great, it's a podcast story right here. <laughs> so this is my first, the first time I ever met Todd Parrott, who ended up being my teammate at Yates. So we pitted. And we took two tires. This thing is far from over until anybody's race. Take a look at the speed. We see Dale Jarrett, the leader, still the fastest car in the top ten. Here we go. The one car goes by Bobby Labonte. On the move. And Morgan moves to third place. He, we came out, he came out with four tires. We came out with two. And I don't know where we came out. I don't remember. I just know that we came out in front of him. And he walked his butt down to my pit and said, there's four tires behind you, you need to move over. And my answer to Todd was, you got to catch that son first. And I'd never met him in my life. Huh. And he was Todd Parrott, you know? I mean, yeah, at yeah. the time, he was, you know, he had already been up and coming. He had already been going. And I said, you got to catch that son first. Dale Jarrett wins the It was the last hurrah for a team that was essentially at the end of the road. And I got phone calls that Monday from people like Robert Yates, Doug Yates, congratulating us. Because they knew what we had overcome. All right. Yeah. You know, no guys, just barely enough for a pit crew. Uh, everybody takes their ass to the racetrack because that's all we got. Um, and we weren't going to win a pit stop off pit road because we didn't, we didn't have a pit crew. I mean, we had a throw together pit crew, but not. Right. And we held our own, man. Morgan left the team later in the year to join Jasper Motorsports. Not long afterward, Michael joined him. Remember, there's Michael McSwain, and then there's Fatback. But even Michael doesn't sugarcoat much, if anything, in his life. Many times, he's worn his heart on his sleeve for one and all to see. Maybe, just maybe, he admits that if he hadn't rocked the boat quite so much, he might still be working in NASCAR. So I always told everybody that my biggest asset was also my biggest problem or my uh, biggest uh, issue. I understand. Yeah. I'm a fighter. If I'm on your side, I'll bleed with you. If you're against me, I'll do anything I can to stop you. Throughout my life and throughout my career, anytime I saw someone who was against me, or against what we were trying to accomplish, or against the people that were stood behind me, then I had a problem with it. Sometimes it hurt me. 
Hindsight 2020, I'm 54 now. I was in my 30s and in my late 20s. If I knew what I knew now, I probably would have done a few things differently. I probably wouldn't have done that any differently because we were spinning our wheels and weren't going anywhere. Early in 1999, Michael joined Ricky Rudd in his final season as an owner-driver. As the season wound down, Rudd accepted an offer to drive for Robert Yates Racing in the year 2000. In November 1999, just a couple of weeks before Michael and his then-fiancee, Deanna, were scheduled to be married, Michael also got a call from Yates. If Michael was interested in continuing as Rudd's crew chief, the job was his. Michael and Deanna went on their honeymoon at Walt Disney World in Florida. Michael was looking so forward to starting work at Robert Yates Racing, he cut the trip short by a couple of days. He cut his honeymoon short. Rudd started from the pole and won at Pocono in June 2001. After about a decade in the sport, it was the first victory of Michael's Winston Cup career. Steve Burke. How about it, Rooster? Mike, Michael McSwain, your first win as a crew chief. What does this mean to you? It means the world, man. It's been a, a long, hard struggle. This car is just like my whole career has been. A long, hard struggle. And this for all them boys. This for mom and dad at home, my wife, you know. Go celebrate, man. Fatback still celebrating. Go to victory lane, Fatback. Oh, that, that's, that's going to last till Sonoma. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe Rusev. 20 years later, the quiet emotion in his voice speaks volumes about what that moment meant to him. It was a very emotional time, obviously. I had worked at that time, that would have been 2001. I started racing, I'd been 34. I started racing cars when I was, or messing around racing cars when I was about 15. And I had won some short track stuff, you know, helping my buddies or whatever. But 30 something year old kid from Lattimore, North Carolina, just won the Pocono 500. That's pretty cool. A little less than three months later at Richmond, Rudd won again. This time, there were most definitely some fireworks. Or nearly so. With less than 20 laps to go, young Kevin Harvick gave Rudd a healthy dose of chrome horn to take the lead. He hit Ricky. I mean, he intended to knock him out of the way. He didn't rub him a little bit. He knocked the crap out of him. And now with 18 laps to go, Kevin Harvick trying to get the lead on Ricky Rudd. Harvick's car, where did he come from? 
This is by far the best his car has been all night. And he's turned Ricky Rudd sideways up. And how did Rudd save that car? That is a save right there. It was our race to win. We already knew it. It was our race to lose, I should say. We had to do something wrong, either in the pits or somewhere to lose that race. That's how good we were. Michael McSwain was about to go full-on fight back with the NASCAR official working his team's pit stall. It's a great story, man. This is not... You might get an award for this one. (laughs) Really? An award? Cool. I'll take it. My NASCAR official's name was John Mazzarelli. Little short guy, right? Great dude. Even temperament. You couldn't really make him mad. Uh... He was just perfect guy. And I got off the top of the pit box, and I walked down, and I walked down the steps. And I walked out on pit road, and I gave him the finger, and I said, come here. And he said, yeah. And I said, you you call the tower, and you tell them that they better be in victory lane because I'm going to whip Harvick's ass <laughs> in victory lane when this race is over with. And he said... I can't tell him that. I said, you need to tell him to meet me down there. Cause Paraphrase. I'm going to beat his ass. You hear me? Right down there. But wait, the story does not end there. And about that time, going down into three and four, Ricky washed Harvick all the way back up the racetrack. He got the bumper. Here comes Rudd. Oh, man. The bump and run. Rudd goes back to the lead with five to go. And I climbed back down the wagon, back down the step, went back out on Victory on Pit Road, and said, John, come here. And he said, what? He was shaking at that point. Because like I say, he was real even-tempered. He said, what? What? I said, disregard my first message. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went back up, and, and then we won the race. Use the old bump and run on it with five laps to go. And it's going to be a big night in the championship for Ricky Rudd. Checkered flag is up. Rudd wins the Chevy Monte Carlo 400 at Richmond. I've got to be honest. A thought struck me as the fight back story unfolded. You know, I might not ought to say this because the journalist is always supposed to be objective. But I I, kind of sort of hate that Ricky won the race. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) And Harvick's my friend. And and you know what? Because I don't know that. More and more heck of a show. I don't even know that he knows that. Yeah. Harvick. Yeah. To this, well, obviously, if he happens to hear this, he'll know it. But he didn't know it up till this point. In late 2002, Michael received an offer to move to Joe Gibbs Racing. There, he would serve as crew chief for Bobby Labonte who was less than two full years removed from capturing the Winston Cup championship. Just a few weeks after joining the organization, Tony Stewart won yet another title for Joe Gibbs Racing. In 2003, Michael and Labonte won in the spring in Atlanta and the very last Winston Cup race ever in the season finale at Homestead. From the outside looking in, It appeared that things were clicking. From the inside, however, that wasn't exactly the case. For whatever reason, driver and crew chief were not seeing eye to eye. And to hear Michael tell it, that's putting it mildly. Things came to a head 
during and in the week after the event at Chicagoland in mid-July 2004. We went somewhere. I don't remember what my last race was, but we went somewhere, and Bobby just destroyed the pit crew on the radio that Sunday. Just obliterated them. And I've already told you once how I'm about my guys. I mean, just, y'all suck. I can't believe we can't get in and out of here and just abuse them. Before he continued with the story, Michael had a thought. This was probably my fault, but it was worth every damn penny of it. According to Michael, Labonte came into the shop the week after the Chicagoland race to get his seat fitted in a new car. There was a message for Labonte in the car, and it was from Fatback, not Michael. He got in the car, put the steering wheel on, and he checked the belts and everything, got everything fixed, and, he's, and the guy who was doing the setup, uh, I think it was Scotty, uh, he said, hey, come here, Bobby wants to talk to you. Oh, this would be freaking great. So I go over there and I walk the setup plate and I say, yeah, what's up? He said, there's two push-to-talk buttons on the steering wheel. I said, yeah. He says, want a backup or whatever? I said, well, that one there, that's the one that's always there. It's one that's been there forever. You use it, talk on the radio. I said, so if you got anything important to tell me about the car, something about the air pressure, what the tires are doing, any adjustment we need to make, you push that button and tell me, just like you always have. He said, cool. He said, what's that button for? I, he said, I said, if you got something stupid to tell me, like the pit crew sucks or you're whining about something, you push that freaking button. And there can't no damn body hear you whine. And I turned around and went to my office. Needless to say, that didn't do a whole lot for the tensions. But it sure made me feel better. Now imagine this. Shortly thereafter, Michael and Fatback were fired. Who would have thunk it? At the end of the 2007 season, Michael resigned his position and left the sport. The wear and tear. The frustration. The time away from his wife and children had simply gotten to be too much. Today. Michael owns Fatback's Tire and Auto in Dallas, North Carolina. Sitting there in his small office, I asked Michael how difficult his transition out of the sport had been. The next few minutes were some of the most emotional of my entire career. When I'm done adjusting, I'll answer that question. Okay. Because I ain't yet. Me and my wife, we started over. At the time, we had been married for, uh, so that was 06, so we had been married for seven years. Been together for, we were together five prior to getting married. Um, We started all the way over. Because she'd been running the house while I was gone. Right, yeah. And I'd been out making money, and I'd been running everything where I was. And so we we had to refine our boundaries. Um, Personally, I've been lost ever since. Um, I would trade nothing for I've not missed I might have missed one baseball game my son started playing when he was 5 he's 13 uh, I probably only missed one soccer game my other son uh, he started when he was 5 and he's 11 my, my daughter I'm, I'm, I'm almost every gymnastics competition 
Uh, I didn't miss any of that stuff. I got to see her win for the first time, you know. Um, got to see my son's home run the first time. My other son's goal. Uh, you couldn't give me a bag of money to trade that out of me. Uh, there's no no price, you know. And, and a lot of those guys never saw that. Jimmy Finney, he's one of the guys that helped coach me through that time um, when I was struggling. And he missed a lot of his kids, and he kept telling me over and over, "Don't miss it." And um, but I, that's who I am. I'm a dad first, and a husband, um, and a Christian. But. That's who I. That's what I did. This other stuff, I'm just doing it so I can be with my kids. I still. That is still what I do. I probably never get to do it again. Uh, but I still. I've never found peace since I walked away. As a journalist, I just report the story. It's not part of my job description to become part of the story. But in that moment, a reality set in. Michael's emotions were real, and they were raw. As a fellow human being, I could not sit there and allow Michael to remain so far out on the limb by himself. My wife Jeannie and I have twin sons, Adam and Jesse. One day, Adam made it absolutely impossible to feel sorry for myself. As I sat there with Michael, I told him my story. I made the mistake of saying in front of my wife and kids, I said, I used to be somebody. And I, I mean, I, that was deep. I oh, mean, yeah. that came from a deep, dark place. And one of my, my wife and I have twin boys, and they were, that, that, that was 07, 08. They were, they were seven. They were six or seven, so they were still pretty young. But one of those boys heard me say that at six or seven, and he crawled up in my lap, and he hugged me tight. Now, I'm not talking about a one-arm man hug. I'm talking about he hugged my neck, and he looked at me, and he said, you are somebody, you're my daddy. For the last 30 years, I have loved writing, and now that I'm doing this podcast, talking about NASCAR. Working in the sport is what I do, but it's not who I am, and it's not who Michael or even Fatback are either. I'm Rick Houston, and this has been another glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing story. I'll be back with another next week. Share what you thought about this glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing story with us at Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Glorious Racing Stories is a production of Dirty Mo Media, hosted by me, Rick Houston. This show is produced by Andrew Curland, executive producers Mike Davis and Jason Schultz. Artwork is by Sean Sin. Special thanks to Leah Vaughn, 
Broadcast audio is credited to MRN, Fox, NBC, CBS, ESPN, and ABC. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo. You're going to do it. You're going to win it. You're going to win it.